Back when I was 10 years old and in the fourth grade, I drew a poster that illustrated everything I loved and hated about the world. For some reason, I've kept it after all these years, and not too long ago, I hung it up in the mudroom of my house. Take a look at this poster, and you'll get a sense for who I was in elementary school. I loved pepperoni pizza and the color red and the number three, but I hated mosquitoes and cigarette smoke and boiled squash. Of the top five things I wanted to do with my time on Earth, number four was to live a satisfying life, and number two was to live in a more peaceful world. Pretty heady stuff, but those aspirations paled behind my number one aspiration at that age, which was a desire, and I quote, to play for the Wings. Now, the Wings were a professional indoor soccer team from the 1980s, and to understand just how deeply a part of the 1980s the Wings were, it helps to listen to this song. The synthesizer music here sounds like a cross between the Yamaha DX7 tunes you heard on Top 40 Radio in the 1980s and the 8-bit chiptune ditties you heard on Miss Pac-Man-style video games around the same time. Note that the chorus vocals sound like they were lifted from a Pizza Hut personal pan pizza commercial you might have seen while watching the sitcom 3's Company, and the song's tagline, Go For It, is literally cribbed from the 1982 Sylvester Stallone movie Rocky III. The song is, in short, a kind of Frankenstein's monster of iconic 1980s tropes, and that's awesome, which is exactly what you might say about the sport of professional indoor soccer, which at the same time was an attempt to make the internationally beloved beautiful game of soccer more marketable to American TV audiences. In this way, Major League Indoor Soccer wasn't just a sport, it was a distinctively American form of popular entertainment that lovingly stole from other forms of 1980s entertainment popular at the time. Indeed, indoor soccer wasn't just an attempt to move the outdoor game into carpeted indoor hockey rinks and make it faster. It was a spectacle that seemed to mix the propulsive energy of New Wave with the theatrical rivalries of professional wrestling, a cultural remix on the level of hip-hop that created a visual spectacle on a par with music television. Or at least that's how I, as a child of the 80s, tend to remember it. Here's a TV outtake from back when the game was brand new and the league was trying to sell itself to an American audience. Stand by, because in the next two hours, you're about to see the most exciting new spectator sport in North America. Indoor soccer is played by the major indoor soccer league. You take soccer and move it indoors, it increases the number of shots, the number of goals, you reduce the squad size to six men on the field at one time, and believe me, I think everyone will thoroughly enjoy what they're going to see today. The field is approximately 200 feet long by 85 feet wide and is surrounded by the same boards and glass that are used for hockey. The artificial turf is applied to an insulating board that separates it from the ice and the entire field can be set up in a short time. Indoor soccer was designed to compete with hockey as America's fourth major sport behind baseball, football and basketball. Unlike the outdoor game, which was considered too slow and low-scoring for American audiences, indoor soccer had lots of goals, plenty of commercial breaks, and a bright orange ball that was easy to follow on TV screens. As with hockey, you could make substitutions while the play was still happening, and a tie game after regulation meant overtime and, if that didn't settle things, a shootout. 
This was an innovative way to Americanize the sport and make it more TV-friendly, but at times it made it seem like the rules were being made up in real time, because quite literally they were. The new major indoor soccer league also had to find communities that were interested in this hybrid version of the sport, which could explain how, in 1979, indoor soccer was the first major league professional sport to be played in Kansas, the lightly populated rural state where I grew up. Indeed, the wing soccer team I dreamed of playing for when I was 10 years old was not based in New York or Chicago or even Kansas City. They were the Wichita Wings, and Wichita was and is a mid-sized industrial city, a city that had never hosted any major league professional sports team until the Wings showed up and transformed what it felt like to live in this middle-of-nowhere city for the better part of a decade. I happen to know a thing or two about that since I grew up in Wichita in the 1980s, and having English and Danish and Ecuadorian soccer players as hometown heroes when I was a kid made it seem like my home amounted to something important. Like the outside world was suddenly looking at Wichita and seeing extraordinary potential there. In retrospect, I'll admit that wasn't really true, but the fact that it felt like it could be true meant something to me when I was 10 years old. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. This episode explores the glory that was professional indoor soccer in the 1980s, and specifically a team called the Wichita Wings. This isn't just an episode about sports, it's an episode about how sports can make you feel like you're part of a much bigger and more exciting world when you're a kid, and how one underdog sports team changed the way the people of one small American city saw themselves, how it made them feel a little bit more relevant and global. It's also about how the way you identify with your favorite sports teams as a kid never really leaves you, even as times change and trends come and go, and you find your own completely different path in life. Much of the interview audio in this episode comes from a documentary film called God Save the Wings, which is now making the rounds on the film festival circuit. It actually won the Audience Award for Best Documentary Feature at the St. Louis International Film Festival, and later this month, from April 12th to the 18th, it will appear as part of the Film Fest International in Kansas City. I've put a link to that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. This project actually came onto my radar when I read an oral history about the Wichita Wings, which is co-written by the film's producer, Tim O'Brien. I later met Tim at, of all things, a soccer game and ended up donating to the film's online fundraiser and attending the world premiere of God Save the Wings last year. I interviewed Tim for nearly two hours last month, and while that conversation was too long and specialized to reproduce in its entirety here, much of the story I tell here is paraphrased from that interview as well as from Tim's book and film. To begin to understand the sports culture that gave rise to indoor soccer in the 1980s, it helps to hear this news report from 1978. This is the CBS Evening News with Roger Mudd, substituting for Walter Cronkite. For years, public schools in this country have emphasized sports like baseball, football, basketball, and track. Now there's a fifth one, soccer, and it's fast becoming as popular here as it's been in the rest of the world. Soccer is the fastest growing sport in America right now, and it's growing fastest among the youth of North America. Starting at this grassroots level, soccer is spreading like wildfire. Youngsters love it, their parents love it. People from all walks of life have soccer fever. People like Henry Kissinger, chairman of the board of the North American Soccer League. With 24 teams in cities from coast to coast, the North American Soccer League has already become the nation's third largest pro sports league. And thanks to a major marketing campaign, 
the NASL has had tremendous success selling products that help fans identify with their teams. What's remarkable about that news item, apart from the fact that it suggests that Henry Kissinger was a major sports influencer in the 1970s, is that it was celebrating a soccer league, the NASL, that would no longer exist just a few years later. The North American Soccer League had gotten lots of press thanks to its flashy international players, people like Brazilian superstar Pele, but for all of its good publicity, the league was losing money in part because American sports fans weren't interested in watching it on television. What that CBS News report didn't mention was that a new American Soccer League played indoors would soon drive the NASL out of business and take most of its players. This new league, the Major Indoor Soccer League, featured a TV-friendly style of play designed for American sports fans used to basketball and football. Unlike the outdoor game, indoor soccer was broken into four 15-minute periods and featured fast physical play, simple rules, and lots of scoring. As Sports Illustrated noted, an outdoor game may end one to nothing and leave the crowd delighted. In indoor soccer, the score is more likely to be 10 to 8. Deep think strategy is not part of the indoor game. Fast break on offense, get four guys back on defense, and that's pretty much it, end quote. Here's TV commentary from the first indoor game ever broadcast in December of 1978 between the Philadelphia Fever and the Cincinnati Kids. They do have a penalty box in professional indoor soccer, which they do not in outdoor. But the infractions are pretty much the same, and as Rudy mentioned at the outset, you'll see an awful lot of shots on goal. They have as many as 100 shots on goal. To initiate action, the visiting team will take a direct kick at midfield. The co-owner of the Cincinnati Kids at the time was baseball star Pete Rose, who kicked out the first ball. TV producer Norman Lear co-owned a team called the Detroit Lightning, and other MISL teams were run by the owners of basketball's LA Lakers and football's Miami Dolphins. Which isn't to say that indoor soccer had mastered anything, let alone its own rules in those early years. Here's sports writer Tom Shine and referee Marty Templin ruminating on this in the documentary. First indoor soccer game I ever saw I covered, um, which was not unusual because they had a lot of players who the first indoor soccer game they ever saw they played in. So it was a pretty new experience for a whole bunch of people. And so you kind of figure it out and make it up as you go. We, we were learning as, as the games went on. I mean, we'd, we'd have a situation and we'd call up the league and they go, I don't see that in the rule book either. Amidst all this innovation, soccer purists were quite naturally scandalized by players passing the ball to themselves off the sideboards and scoring goals by accident when the ball bounced off three different players. For this reason, some skeptics derisively referred to indoor soccer as human pinball. In addition to all of this, the new league had to compete against outdoor soccer by creating new markets, which is how it ended up with a team in, of all places, Wichita, Kansas. Now at the time, in the late 1970s, Wichita was a struggling Midwestern industrial city, best known at the national level for a mysterious serial killer named the BTK Strangler, and the city's manufacturing economy was being shaken up at the time by the sale of local aircraft companies like Cessna and Beach to international conglomerates. The promoters who decided to bring a major league indoor soccer team to Wichita hoped it would give the city something to take pride in during this grim time, and they proposed a Wichita team to the league as the Midwestern soccer equivalent of professional football's beloved Wisconsin franchise, the Green Bay Packers. The league benchmark for member cities was a population of at least a half a million citizens, and at the time, Wichita was home to maybe 300,000 people at most. 
As the story goes, Wichita's promoters put a coffee saucer down on a map of Kansas and drew a circle that included about one-third of the state's outlying towns, and thus, in claiming four dozen farm towns as Wichita suburbs, was able to claim that the city was home to 449,000 people. It seemed like a pretty credulous ruse, but in 1979, when I was a little kid in Wichita, I turned on the local NBC TV affiliate to hear this. Soccer League announced today Wichita has been granted a franchise for the 1979-80 season. A group of local businessmen headed by Robert Becker has purchased the expansion franchise. The team will be called the Wichita Wings. The air is quiet and still, like the calm before the storm. You can feel it just above the horizon. Below, we wait in anticipation. The world's most popular game is coming home. Professional indoor soccer at the Kansas Coliseum. Our first major league sport is waiting in the wings. Now, if you come from a big city, maybe it's no big deal when a major league sports franchise comes to town. But for me, growing up in a small industrial city at age eight, the arrival of the Wichita Wings in a league that included teams from New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Cleveland, and Dallas felt like destiny. A chance to prove ourselves as David against the Goliath of bigger and more sophisticated cities. Here's Wichita sportscaster David Phillips. This is Wichita's one chance to play at the highest level of a sport. And you know, keep in mind, the Wings were competing against the, not only in the cities that were bigger, but the NBA owners at that time were the guys who owned the MISL team. So Wichita, Kansas is competing against Jerry Buss and his Lakers, who had the LA Lasers. It was a big deal. And this was the one chance to get the absolute world-class athletes in Wichita. At the time the Wings arrived in Wichita, they represented the smallest franchise market of any major league American sports team. And the demographics of the city went against all the conventional wisdom of which cities would support a game like professional soccer. Soccer was seen as a suburban sport, yet Wichita was a working-class town without any real suburbs. The Kansas Coliseum, which hosted Wings games, was located on a rural stretch of land in the north end of town, and visiting teams would literally see cows and smell cow manure when they got off the team bus to play the Wings. Soccer was seen as a game for upwardly mobile, internationally-minded American fans, yet Wichita had a largely blue-collar population who lived as far as you could get from an international border and still be in the United States. Still, somehow, despite all the stereotypes, the Wings were an instant hit in Wichita. The local newspaper, the Wichita Eagle, wrote feature stories about the team as often as 30 times a month, and the Orange Army, a Wings fan club named for the color of the team's uniforms, made the 9,000-seat Kansas Coliseum a notoriously noisy venue for visiting teams. Against all odds, the Wings made the playoffs at the end of its first season and managed to beat the Detroit Lightning in the first round before falling to the Houston Summit in the semifinals. A big factor in the team's success was its coach Roy Turner, a Liverpool native who'd played with the Dallas Tornadoes of the old outdoor NASL league. 
He had a knack for attracting working-class European players, most of them from places like England and Denmark, to come and play the indoor game in Kansas. Within a year or two, the Wings were seen as a treasured civic institution in Wichita, as important to the community's sense of self as the Wichita Symphony or the Wichita Art Museum. Apart from winning games, one of the ways the Wings brought in fans was to cultivate a carnival-like sense of showmanship. At a time when NBA and NFL contests were still introducing players in the fairly straightforward manner of college games, the Wings entered the darkened arena at the Kansas Coliseum in a cloud of smoke to the piercing horns of the Rocky theme song, and when the team won, the arena played Queen's stomping anthem, Another One Bites the Dust. One of the weirdest aspects of many of those early Wings games came in the form of a guy from California named Crazy George, who fancied himself an international fan for hire back in the day, a guy who for the price of $150 and a plane ticket would fly to Kansas to fire up Wings fans. Here's Wings coach Roy Turner on why the team needed a guy like Crazy George. Well, most of the Wings fans had no history there, so their mom and, mom and dad basically were not Wings fans. They were a new generation. So therefore, we have to teach them how to become fans. Crazy George was one of the first things I told our franchise, we've got to bring him in for a few games. And he did his job. He taught the people. We didn't need him anymore. They taught themselves, and they were all ready to go. But, oh, yeah, he was crazy. Crazy George Henderson, as if you didn't know. George, all right. <laughs> they've got a full house on hand for you here tonight. What are you going to do to keep the fans on top of things? We're going to cheat a lot and win. <laughs> Though Crazy George was an eccentric footnote to 1980s sports culture, the major indoor soccer leagues saw these kinds of non-sports factors as part of their promotion strategy. Indeed, the league had a way of marketing the games as a user-friendly product in the same way one might market soap or tires or blockbuster movies. Whereas Wichita Wings games had spotlights and pyrotechnics, Kansas City Comets games featured a laser light show, the Baltimore Blast entered the arena at home games in a fake spaceship lowered down from the rafters at the top of the Civic Center, and the Memphis Americans had a pizza with the players fan promotion that proved so popular it had to be canceled because the players were gaining too much weight. Wichita also encouraged its soccer players to interact with fans after the game, and the presence of handsome young European stars in a place like Kansas meant that the Wichita Wings became the first Major League American sports team to achieve 40% female fan attendance at games. When Sports Illustrated wrote about indoor soccer in the 1980s, it pointed out that sex appeal was an active part of the league's marketing strategy, and even as a little kid in Wichita, I could see that this was a real thing. My older sister, for instance, loved the Wings, and in particular, she loved a blonde-haired young London native named Andy Chapman, the team's all-star forward. Andy Chapman was larger than life in Wichita, and I've often joked that if you put Harrison Ford, Sting, and Andy Chapman in a room together in Kansas in 1981, the girls of Kansas would have trampled the actor and the rock star in an effort to get closer to the charismatic young Wings player. Here's an outtake from God Save the Wings, featuring a medley of voices talking about the appeal of a guy like Andy Chapman. Andy Chapman, he knows that all the women are looking at him. He'd get his legs tanned, and then before the game, he'd whap on a load of oil, so it was all glistening, and you could see his calf muscles bulging out there, and other muscles bulging out of his shorts. Andy Chapman, one of the more flamboyant players here for the Wings. He, He was flirtatious with the girls without even knowing that he was doing it. This is one we're going to have to get a chaperone 24-7. We all tried to look as good as Andy Chapman, but we couldn't. I mean, there was, there was just no way. Andy was the man. Andy was the man. Still the man. Yeah. 
Chapman with a new hairstyle this year. Chapman had real long curly hair last year, and he's got it cut almost into a brush cut this year. And he's got a new hairdo, doesn't he? He's got a new do for a tonight's game. Nice little curl down there at the bottom. Adds a little extra touch to it. Hey, if you can score goals, you can wear your hair any way you want. Hey, whatever works. It was thanks to players like Andy Chapman and the chemistry of the team in general that by 1983, the Wichita Wings were selling out nearly every home game, averaging higher arena attendance in our little industrial town than the NBA Hawks were drawing in Atlanta or the Cavaliers in Cleveland or even the pre-Michael Jordan Bulls were drawing in Chicago. The people of Wichita took pride in rooting for an underdog team, representing an underdog town, playing in an underdog league of an underdog American sport. It was glorious. The team's fan club, the Orange Army, would turn out in droves to meet the wings at Wichita's airport every time the team flew into town, be it after a win or a hard loss, and scores of local commercials sounded something like this spot from a car dealer called Eddie's Toyota. Hi, my name's Andy Chapman, and I play for the Wichita Wings. I've been playing professional soccer here in the United States for three years, and I've driven quite a lot of cars, but I must say that the Toyota Celica is definitely the best car I've ever driven. The remarkable thing about the Wichita Wings, though, was that the players didn't just show up in car commercials. The team saw to it that players showed up all over the city, be it at post-game after parties or children's soccer development summer camps. Summer sports camps were actually how I was able to meet my soccer heroes in Wichita. I'll add a photo or two of me at age 10 in the show notes. Part of the magic of that time was that while it was probably rare for the young baseball fans of Houston to hang out with the pitcher Nolan Ryan, or football-loving kids of Dallas to spend time with running back Tony Dorsett, I was able to learn the game of soccer from my own soccer heroes, people like Norman Piper of England or Kim Rontvedt of Denmark at Wichita Wings Day Camps. As Bill Kentling, the team's general manager during its 1980s heyday, pointed out, this was very much by design. Roy Turner, a number of the players... Uh, particularly the foreign-born players, understood that that they had almost a Pied Piper role in bringing kids uh, into soccer. We crossed every creek. We knocked on every door. If you had a school with a playground, we had a soccer clinic there. At this point, I should probably confess that because I loved the team and its players so much when I was a little kid, it's probably impossible for me to be objective in telling the story of the Wichita Wings and the significance of Major League Soccer in the 1980s. I'm sure there were plenty of people back then, even in Wichita, who didn't know much or care much about the Wings, and that's fine. But for me, having a major league soccer team representing my little provincial prairie city on the national stage made me feel like I could dream big and imagine myself connected to the outside world in a newly dynamic and meaningful way. I wouldn't say it's completely accurate to suggest that the reason I began to travel the world in the 1990s was inspired by the presence of a Kansas pro soccer team in the 1980s, but it's not inaccurate either. As I threw myself into the emotional stakes of cheering for the English, Danish, Argentine, and Ecuadorian players representing my hometown on the indoor soccer pitch, those places felt more real to me, more accessible, and more relevant to my own life. Now, I've suggested that the Wichita Wings represent a classic American underdog story, and they do, but unlike so many classic underdog stories you hear about in America, it doesn't involve the team rising from obscurity to win the championship. In fact, of the 14 years that the major indoor soccer league existed, two powerhouse teams, the New York Arrows and the San Diego Soccers, won the league championship a total of 12 times. That's 85% of the league's titles going to just two teams. The Wichita Wings, by contrast, never even made it to the league championship series. 
But from my own admittedly biased point of view, the major indoor soccer league wasn't about title games in cosmopolitan coastal cities. The league's most fanatical fan bases were unglamorous cities like Cleveland and Baltimore and Kansas City. And the league's most iconic rivalry, which produced what is believed to be the greatest game in indoor soccer history, was between my own Wichita Wings and a team from another part of the Midwest known as the St. Louis Steamers. What made this rivalry interesting was the way it inverted the stereotypes of the city's teams and fan bases. Whereas Wichita had a largely working-class fan base, the Wings international players used an elegant passing-oriented strategy that mimicked the European outdoor game. St. Louis, on the other hand, had a wealthy suburban fan base, yet their team was famously made up of Missouri-born Americans who played a scrappy, physical, blue-collar brand of soccer. Here's how a USA Network broadcast summed up the rivalry in 1981. Some of the greatest games have probably been played between these two teams. I think if anyone had never seen an MISL game, my recommendation would be to wait until you see a Wings-Steamers game because it is just tremendous. You have a sort of rough playing that is considered somewhat the American style against, of course, the finesse of the uh, Wichita Wings. Again, the irony here is that the European-born finesse players were cheered on by the farmers and factory workers of Kansas, whereas the rough-and-tumble Americans who played for the steamers were cheered on by wealthy St. Louis suburbanites who actively scorned Wichita fans as low-class. I remember watching a televised game out of St. Louis where the local promotion for the game against the Wings was called Rube Night, where Steamers fans were encouraged to come to the game dressed up as hicks and hillbillies clad in overalls and trucker hats to mock Wichita's fan base. What I didn't discover until years later was that Rube Night had been planned with the blessing of the Wings organization as part of the league's pro-wrestling-style strategy to attract fans by hyping rivalries and theatrically fostering bad blood. For the same reason, St. Louis took an almost jingoistic pride in having a mostly American roster. Here's sportscaster Dave Phillips. A lot of the St. Louis kids were homegrown, like that great native St. Louisian Slobo Ilyevsky in gold. Yeah, there's, there, there's, a, there's a fine kid from the, the streets of South St. Louis, but they really played up all the local kids they had. And so they promoted it just as hard as we did. You know, here come the foreigners into town. Do you love America? Come out and buy a ticket and watch St. Louis beat these guys. If there was one consistent thing about the Wings-Steamers rivalry during that era, it's that, frustratingly for me, St. Louis almost always won. Just as baseball teams in the 1950s had a tough time beating the New York Yankees, the Wichita Wings of the 1980s never seemed to be able to beat the St. Louis Steamers. This all seemed like it would change in March of 1981 when, during a semifinal playoff game, the Wings held a 6-1 lead over the Steamers with 15 minutes to play. Indeed, for the first time ever, it seemed as if the Wings would finally achieve soccer glory and play the New York Arrows for the league championship a couple days later. But what followed in the last 15 minutes was considered the greatest comeback and by many accounts the greatest game in indoor soccer history. The Wings were on the losing side of what turned out to be the first sudden death shootout in MISL playoff history, and for me as a 10-year-old, this result was utterly heartbreaking. For those interested, the documentary God Save the Wings, which I've been excerpting here, tells the story of that game in poetic and excruciating detail. For Steamers fans, the comeback was about breaking up the Wings' pass-oriented finesse game with bruising physicality, and a key moment in the game came when a bruising Steamers player named Don Ebert critically injured the Wings' all-star goalkeeper, a Welshman named Mike Dowler, in what many Wings players and fans insisted was a dirty play. 
One narrative subtext of this story is that many people from Wichita, my 10-year-old self included, felt that the League was more worried about TV viewership shares and creating an aura of cosmopolitan sophistication for their new League than they were worried about fair play. And for this reason, they didn't want a small market Hicktown team to take on the New York Arrows in the final. Whatever happened, our normally mild-mannered English coach Roy Turner and team captain Kevin Cooley vented their frustration to TV reporters after the game. I don't care what it costs me. I've never seen officiating like it in my life. I just, I've never seen anything like it. We're not a physical team. Uh, maybe I should hire some boxers or something. Because I think they know, and they guys know, it's the Wichita Wings who should be in the final. It was just ironical. We couldn't believe it. We were all just saying, well, they may as well just said before the game, New York and St. Louis go and play. Is there no way they want Little Wichita in the final? Simple as that. When it comes down to it, I guess the history of anything boils down to the stories we decide to tell about it. For the Wichita Wings, it was the story of corporate office decision makers deciding that the referees shouldn't allow a small market team in the championship game. And for the St. Louis Steamers, it was the story of their locally born American players using their physicality to overcome the European interlopers and shame their Hicktown fans. Whatever the case, the Steamers ended up losing to the powerhouse New York Arrows in the championship game, and the Wichita Wings never again came that close to making it to the finals. Still, the underdog Wings proved to be the most beloved and memorable team the league ever produced. When the major indoor soccer league finally folded in 1992, the Wichita Wings were its longest surviving franchise, and the Kansas Coliseum, despite its rural setting and cow manure parking lot odor, remained the league's toughest, noisiest arena for visiting teams to play in. So why didn't indoor soccer make it as America's fourth major sport? Snobs will say that the likes of Wichita made it seem too minor league and provincial to succeed. Purists, on the other hand, will insist that it took too many liberties with the beautiful game to qualify as a legitimate version of soccer. In truth, indoor soccer's iconic major league folded for such workaday reasons as promotional costs and salary inflation. It also lacked high-profile player name recognition at a time when the National Hockey League, which competed with indoor soccer for winter sports fans, became synonymous with the superstar Wayne Gretzky, and a gravity-to-find Chicago Bulls basketball player named Michael Jordan turned the NBA into a primetime TV attraction. Perhaps most painfully and flying in the face of the league's instinct for pitch-perfect 1980s time capsule flair, the major indoor soccer league turned down an offer from an upstart cable station named ESPN in favor of a fledgling TV venture named FNN Score. Thus, while ESPN grew to become the most important sports network on the planet, indoor soccer games were relegated to being broadcast on a cable sports station that went out of business after six mostly forgettable years. To this day, the major indoor soccer league is remembered, if it's remembered at all, as a relic of the 1980s, as unique to the era as leg warmers and the mullet haircut and music videos on MTV. Here's sportscaster Steve Dennis. I think the MISL had a real chance to be big time. It was big time for about five, six years. Salaries got too big, they blew it. The whole thing started getting torn down, but man, that you talk about soccer in this country, the MISL was close, close to getting over whatever that hump was and becoming a very big deal. If you squint hard, you might be able to see the legacy of the MISL in America's professional outdoor soccer leagues, but you're just as likely to see its legacy in the way it inspired other winter sports to become showier and more theatrical, in the way the NBA learned to introduce its players in the manner of the Wichita Wings using darkened arenas filled with spotlights and clouds of smoke. 
For me, of course, the truest legacy of Major League Indoor Soccer lies in a lingering sense of pride I felt for my hometown team when I was a little kid, in the way the distinctively 1980s textures of indoor soccer made my provincial little city in Kansas feel like it was a dynamic part of a much bigger and more exciting world, a world that I still take pride in rediscovering in new ways. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts, which is produced by myself and Justin Glow. More information about everything I just mentioned, including the documentary God Save the Wings and how to see it at places like Film Fest International in Kansas City, as well as Tim O'Brien's oral history of indoor soccer, Make This Town Big, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. 